Okay, for about the seventh week in a row, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. What I'm calling the core teachings of Jesus, the overall theme is core discipleship. And we're just doing a slow walk through it. You know, Jesus preaches this most famous sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, the most influential sermon ever preached, but we're not in a rush to get through it. So, as we enter into today's text, we'll be in Matthew 5, verse 27 through 32. Uh, and I'll tell you from the, from the beginning, there are two things that have really changed my life in the last several months. One of those is discovering Sam's, which apparently I'm late to the party on that because a lot of you have told me that, and I don't know why you're withholding from me how great that store is. So, Sam's and Vest. I discovered Vest uh, in the last few months, and I know... That I'm late to that as well because I look around the room on a day like this where it's actually cold and I see there's a lot of people wearing vests. And I've had a lot of people say to me, hey, your preaching vests are looking really good. Uh, nobody, not one person has actually said that to me. Uh, but my friend Doug is here today and he did text me and said, nice vest. And I thought, you ruined my opening joke because you're the only one that's actually said it. Yeah, I mean, vests are kind of the thing uh, when it's cold. But I don't wear vests because... They're stylish or because they keep me warm. I like wearing vests because they cover me up. Uh, if you ever go back and look at our live stream, I mean, you can feel really self-conscious when you're looking at yourself on camera. So I feel a little more covered up when I'm wearing vests. But you don't know what's going on underneath this vest. My shirt may be wrinkled. I may be sweaty. And probably more likely what's actually happening is I might be gaining a little holiday weight. And you're less likely to see it because it's covered up by the vest. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he doesn't care so much about the vest. What Jesus cares about is what's going on underneath the vest. He's not so much concerned about the outward appearance as he is your heart. What's going on beneath the surface. One of the things that I mentioned last week, I asked a question, then I gave an example. The question is, what does it mean to be an inside-out follower of Jesus who has internalized his core teachings? What I mean by inside-out follower of Jesus is that everything that we do as his followers flows from our heart, from inside of us, our inner self. And we've internalized his core teachings, meaning we have obeyed his teachings so much for so long we've internalized it, it's become second nature to us. The example is, if you think about a mosaic, I don't know if this is the best picture example, but if you think about Jesus' teachings like a mosaic where they all fit together, one piece of that mosaic would be to learn to control your anger and be the, a peacemaker, a type of person that pursues reconciliation. That's one piece of the mosaic. We talked about that last week. Another piece of the mosaic would be to not commit adultery. Or at least that's where Jesus begins in Matthew 5 and verse 27. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Okay, that comes from the Ten Commandments. There are Ten Commandments. This is the seventh of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. Do not commit adultery, or literally in the Hebrew, it is no adultery. And I realized that as you know, preparing for a lesson like this, and I preached the Ten Commandments about three years ago, I started thinking about how words like adultery, those are like church words, biblical words. We don't use those types of words 
in our everyday conversations. We use words like cheating or affair. Adultery, in the biblical sense, the actual definition of adultery is sexual relations with somebody that is not your spouse or sexual relations with somebody else's spouse. That's the definition of adultery. And the Ten Commandments say, do not commit adultery. Now, I want to acknowledge from the beginning, because this is a difficult text today, that there probably are a lot of us in the room that either have been affected by it, or maybe you've gone through an adulterous situation or a difficult time in your marriage or in your family, somebody else that was married. And if you've gone through something like this, and this word adultery kind of reminds you of a lot of pain from your past, If you've gone through it and there's been healing and there's been forgiveness and there's been reconciliation, the last thing that I want to do is reopen any old wounds. So just keep that in mind. That's not the purpose here. But at the same time, we don't want to minimize what Jesus is teaching. And I think even if this is part of your story from the past and there's pain from your past, I think you can get on board with that. We don't want to minimize what Jesus is teaching either. We want... You know, I'm just committed to teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And a few weeks ago, I was like, oh, crud. I got this uh, lust and divorce passage coming up. Well, I could dodge it. I could go around it. Uh, it's been joked that maybe I could have just asked Josh to preach on it, and I could have just avoided it altogether. But I thought, no, you know, this is what we do. We preach through the text. We're going to be faithful to it, to what Jesus taught. So we're going to hit it head on. But I will say a little disclaimer as we talk about this. That I know there's a little bit of a risk for a preacher to preach on adultery or lust or anything along those lines, marriage, remarriage, divorce, because some people may think he's not going far enough. He needs to hit that harder. And there's other people who think he's pushing that too far. So I realize it's going to be hard to please. I'm a textual preacher. I'm just going to walk through the text as best I can. So Jesus says, you've heard that it was said. Do not commit adultery. That's sort of his formula. That's his flow in Matthew chapter 5 when he's given us what it looks like to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Six different times in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you have heard that it was said, and he'll quote something from the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. He says, but I say to you. So he says, you've heard that it was said, seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. And in verse 28, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, just pause on verse 28 for a minute. Uh, Just like we talked about last week, he goes to the commandment, do not murder, no murder. But Jesus gets to the heart behind the law. He gets to the root of it. And he said, it's not just about not murdering someone and you're okay. It's about dealing with the anger in your own heart. And he does the same thing with do not commit adultery. It's not just about the physical act of adultery. It's about lust. It's about what's going on in your heart and dealing with that. So he equates lust and adultery and puts them on the same level, just like he does with murder and with anger. So it may help to kind of define lust. Um, So he says, if you look at a woman lustfully, the ESV says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, I know it's kind of a male-dominated culture back then, and I think uh, the implications would be for both men and women if you look at another human being with lust. So let's just say that from the beginning. 
Now, what is lust? I've studied this, I've studied this, and I've studied it, and man, there's so many different, different definitions of what uh, we could consider lust. I think we kind of get the general idea, but the way I defined it from week one, I will use my own definition, which is kind of a summary of several other definitions, is it's objectifying another human being for your own sexual gratification. That's, I think, a pretty good summary definition of what lust is. Now, if you're looking up the Greek word, you could find other words that are synonymous with lust, and covet is one of those words. That's the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's stuff. Coveting is desiring something that does not belong to you. So you could kind of add that, you know, desiring another human being that's not your spouse, and you're using them, whether it's mentally or, or whatever it may be, just in your thought life, for your own sexual fulfillment, sexual desire, fueling that sexual desire. That is what lust is. But I want to say that when Jesus teaches this, he's not saying, if you look at anybody and you find them attractive. That's not what he's saying. That would be impossible. And we all know that God has wired us to find other human beings attractive, find people of the opposite sex attractive. And so it would be impossible to go through life and not find somebody attractive, you can appreciate beauty and appreciate that somebody is attractive without taking that next level of some scholars, some authors call it the gaze. Where it's, it's not just looking, but it's staring, and it's staring for the purpose of your own sexual fulfillment. Now, you think about sexual temptation, and the thoughts that may go through our mind, as one author put it, sometimes these thoughts go through our minds like an uninvited guest. And I think everybody probably has had some kind of fleeting, sexual, inappropriate thought. And it's one thing to have the thought. It's another thing to feed it and to entertain it and to keep, keep it there and just keep pushing it more and more into your life and into your thoughts. You don't have to welcome it. You don't have to embrace it. But overall, what Jesus is saying is, I, the seventh commandment says do not commit adultery. I say if you look at somebody else lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So adultery is not just the physical act of having an affair or sexual relations with somebody else's spouse or somebody that's not your spouse, but it would also be what you look at, what you fantasize about, what you click on. That, like, lust is adultery of the heart. That is what Jesus is teaching. Now, I'm going to say this about our own culture. Sexual temptation is everywhere. I don't know if you're uncomfortable talking about this or not, but it needs to be said, and I think this is obvious. Um, TVs, TV shows, movies, uh, the music we listen to, and especially social media. And if you got rid of all that, you just drive down the road and look at billboards if you're in Dallas you're going to see that sexual temptation is everywhere. And what I wrote down in my own notes is it is shoved down our, in our faces, down our throats in this culture. Like, you cannot get away from it. Sexual temptation is everywhere, and we have constant accessibility to it. Specifically what I mean by that, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out, but I'm referring to pornography. So, with our phones, computers... We have constant accessibility to look at things 
uh, that fuel that sexual desire even more at our fingertips by clicking on whatever we want to, and we can do that anonymously. So, we know that. We just acknowledge it. Um, And what we've done in our society, especially in the last several decades, sexual temptation has always been around. It was around in Jesus' time, but with the advent of the internet and pornography, uh, what we've done is we've created a society, even probably more now than ever, where we view other human beings as if they are just existing to fuel our own sexual desires. Man, that is a messed up way of seeing people in the world. So if this is how our culture is, and I've had one-on-one conversations with people and I've talked about this, and I'm like, man, this has got to be the toughest time, 21st century, to be a human being and try to follow the teachings of Jesus because of how much it is all around us, maybe all around us so much we don't even notice it anymore. So what do we do with it? How is it even possible to try to be faithful to what Jesus teaches here in this culture that we live in? Well, I'll give you a few options. Some of them may not work. One option could be to just close your eyes. In Jesus' time, historically it's been said that there were uh, such things, or such people, not things, as bruised and bloodied rabbis. They got this reputation, this nickname, because they so desperately wanted to avoid sexual temptation or adulterous thoughts that when they saw a woman in public, anytime they even saw a woman, they just closed their eyes. And if they're walking and they close their eyes, there's a good chance they're going to run into a building or run into a tree or fall off a curve. And so that's where they got their nickname, Bruised and Bloodied Rabbi. Want to stay pure? Want to not look at anybody lustfully? That's one option. Just close your eyes. Just don't do it while you're driving. Uh, Another option was you could just become a monk. You could move off to a monastery, and you could try to completely get rid of any kind of possible temptation there could possibly be. But going all the way back to the early church until now, monks who have dedicated their life to go live in a monastery will admit, in writing, I still struggle with sexual temptation. You could close your eyes, you could run away, you could go live in the wilderness, you could go live in a a monastery somewhere, but the temptation still finds us like that uninvited guest. So what do we do with this? Well, one option Jesus gives us is amputation. Probably the most graphic of all of Jesus' teachings in verse 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. A very, very graphic teaching from Jesus. And so right away, when you're interpreting the Bible, you look at something like this and you're like, does he mean that literally? Does Jesus mean we should literally gouge out our eye or cut off our hand? I would say no. But in the early church, there were some people who mutilated themselves based on Jesus' teaching and their own struggle with lust. One of the early church fathers, Origen, made himself a eunuch because he struggled with lust. But later, the church and different councils that met uh, kind of condemned that and said, stop mutilating yourself. I think you're misreading Jesus. There's a guy named Ed Dobson who wrote a book in 2008. I read this book about 15 years ago. It's called The Year of Living Like Jesus. 
Uh, he had to retire from his career in preaching, was diagnosed with ALS, and, and so his life took a different course. I won't give you his whole story, but he wound up preaching or, or doing some fill-in work at a Christian university in Florida, and one day he was teaching on this text. And he said that after class, he had a student come up to him and show him his eye and how this student had taken Jesus' teachings literally. I know that's graphic, but he had gouged out his own eye. He said, that's what Jesus says to do. And I could not stop struggling with sexual temptation, with lust. And so I wanted to follow Jesus, so I did this. And you know, Ed was mentioning I had never met anybody who had taken Jesus literally but the student said, the problem is, I still struggle with lust with my other eye. He had just become a one-eye luster. So you look at what Jesus is talking about. I don't think, I, I strongly do not think that Jesus means you need to physically harm yourself. Like Jesus often does, is he uses hyperbole. He uses exaggerated language. He does this a lot. He did that in the text that we looked at last week about leaving your gift at the altar and taking a three-day journey to Galilee to go make a relationship, right? And then coming back and offering your sacrifice. He, he exaggerates often or sometimes uses graphic points to stress the seriousness of what he is talking about. And that's what he's doing here. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. I want to tell you the seriousness of what it is that you're dealing with here if you give in to this habitual lusting after others. One of the things he was doing was he's, Jesus is challenging all of us today and back then to take responsibility. Men in that culture had really segregated women in their congregations and social settings and had suppressed their freedom because men would blame women in that male-dominated society. And many authors will say that what Jesus is teaching here was actually kind of revolutionary for both men and women who would have been on that mountain with him. When he's directing this at men, he's saying, he, he is telling them, do not take the blame her, she enticed me approach. You can't blame others. Take responsibility, he says, for what your eyes look at and where your hands go. You take responsibility for that. You practice self-control. It's not somebody else's fault. Don't blame others. Practice self-control. And then when he says, gouge it out, cut it off, I think he's saying just swiftly get rid of it. I think far too often, too many of us know what happens when we don't swiftly get rid of that temptation. The destruction it could cause in, in marriage the destruction that it can cause in other relationships, in your own self, uh, in the own rewiring of your brain, in the misdirected, misguided sexual thoughts that we have or expectations that are unfair of our spouse. Like If we don't get rid of it, it sends us down a very dark and desolate path. So Jesus says, yeah, the best thing for you to do is cut it off at its source and get rid of it. Martin Luther once said, and I think his quote is fitting here, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can keep it from making a nest in my hair. Which, yeah, that's a pretty fitting quote. You can't help it if, you know, you, you turn on the TV, or I, I guess you could help it, you could get rid of your TV, get rid of all phones, but if you somewhat live in society, and you get on there and you see something, sometimes you just can't help it, it just... 
It just appears, or you're driving down the road, you see a billboard. Like, those birds are flying over our head. We can't always help that, especially in this culture we live in, but we can prevent those birds from making a nest in our hair. One of the things that I asked about anger last week is to learn to question your own anger. Ask yourself some questions. So do the same thing with lust. (coughs) When are you more likely to lust? Is it a certain time of the day? Is it when you're alone? Is it when you're with certain people? What triggers lust in you? Is it what you're looking at, what you're clicking on, what you allow yourself to see? Is it when you are maybe under the influence and so your your inhibitions have been lowered and you make poor decisions? What triggers lust in you? When are you more likely to lust? And prevent those birds from nesting in your hair And I think it's okay to set up some parameters to try to safeguard against the things that we might see. Especially if it's something that triggers you and and causes you to struggle. Set a filter on your phone. Set a filter on your internet. Share your password with someone else. You know, fight back a little bit. Give a little pushback. I know that this is, out of all the sins, this is one that probably causes the most guilt and shame. And so because of that, and I think the way that Satan works, is we just hide it constantly. And we're afraid to confess it to Jesus or confess it to anyone else. So it may require you just putting that white flag out and saying, I surrender, I can't do this on my own. I confess it to Jesus, I confess it to someone else, I need help, I need an accountability partner. And for some of you, maybe just talking about this makes you uncomfortable because it has had a stronghold on your life for a long time. And if that's the case, my prayer is that as uncomfortable as it may make you feel, there's something about talking about affairs, lust, adultery, any sexual temptation, that somehow just talking about this today in God's Word will disrupt your life and maybe prevent you from making a marriage-altering decision in a negative way or prevents you from heading down a path of addiction. Okay, now to the uh, more exciting part of the text, Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 through 32. If you haven't read it ahead of time, this is not the more exciting part of the text. But anyways, I'm going to read verse 31 and 32 as Jesus continues to use this word adultery. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, Five years ago, February of 2019, I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark. I got to Mark chapter 10, which meant that was the section that dealt with a similar text about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And I remember going into that Sunday, the closer I got to that Sunday, the more nervous I got. And I had even sent out an email kind of warning people, hey, this is what we're going to be talking about. I think it was kind of stirring up some emotions. I came into that Sunday very nervous. I was standing right here, preaching on Mark chapter 10, and that was the first time that Sunday that I ever had a little panic anxiety attack while preaching. 
And now this is kind of my own story, but that Sunday morning set my life down a path of dealing with anxiety and some pretty extreme fears for the next several years. And, you know, God has helped bring healing to me, but it all kind of roots back to that Sunday when I felt the weight of this topic and brought that in there with me, and then something happened to me physically as well. I know, I know that this affects a lot of people, and this is a difficult topic. I have had friends that have gone through divorce. And I'm not just saying that. Like, I honestly have had some close friends who have gone through a divorce, and I have walked with them through it. I have talked with them through it. And I know from being that close to the situation how painful it is, how difficult it is, how ugly it can get, how sometimes one person will try to work on it, the other person won't. They could go to counseling for years. And and it's never really just one reason. I know people who have been divorced and chose not to remarry because of what Jesus taught. I know people who have divorced, and probably more people that have divorced and chosen to remarry. I know people who have divorced reluctantly. I know people who have divorced recklessly. And it's not all just one reason, but the old statistics show, and it's still true today, that about 50% of marriages end in divorce. And that's not just out there in the world. That affects our church. Maybe we have... Normally 400 people here on a Sunday morning, maybe a little less today. Maybe 100 or so will watch on live stream. That means that probably half of the people listening to me right now in some form or fashion have been affected by divorce in one way or another. I know it affects a lot of people. Uh, It's not that the divorce rates have gone down, but the marriage rates have gone down. Uh, Statistics that I've read is that millennials have grown up and chosen not to get married, or a lot of them have. They just choose to live together. Some of that is because they grew up in broken homes and and they're afraid to make that commitment, but they're fine with living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. Or it could be that millennials go to church less and they're less influenced by the church's teachings. You know, I'm not real sure. It depends on what you're reading. But the divorce rates are still high enough, just the marriage rates have gone down. So Jesus talks about what he talks about with a divorce, and I'll kind of speed up the pace for the next few minutes. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is what Jesus is referencing. You have heard that it was said, and he talks about this divorce and marriage certificate. Let me read Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 so that you can at least say at one point in your life you read something from Deuteronomy on a Sunday morning. If a man marries a woman who has become displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled, probably meaning she's been with the second husband, had sexual relations with him, so the first husband can't just reclaim her. So that will be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now going all the way back to creation, God's idea was for a man and a woman to leave their father and mother, be united as one flesh, and that be a lasting commitment forever. But by the time you get to Moses, both Israelites and uh, the ancient Near East, divorce had become rampant. Men... 
Again, in that male-dominated society, would just take a wife and then decide, I don't want her anymore and leave her. Take another wife, I don't want her anymore and leave her. Uh, it was a pretty you know, harsh world that they lived in. And so even though God is not for divorce, this law comes in as a way to regulate what was happening. You can't just dump her and throw her out into the wilderness. You have to at least legally go through the process of offering her a certificate of divorce. And that certificate of divorce given to women actually liberated them. It gave them a second chance. Women and children in the ancient world were so vulnerable socially and economically to just be ditched by their husband could potentially lead to all kinds of danger for them. But if they had that certificate of divorce, it at least gave them a second chance for both women and for kids because we know that when you know the children that are go through divorce, sometimes it affects them in ways that we probably don't even know yet. And so in that world, children would also be vulnerable. So that certificate of divorce, of divorce actually gives them a second chance. Now, you get to the time of Jesus. There were two rabbis that had two main schools of thought. Rabbi Shema and Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Shema was the more conservative view, and he believed that you could only get divorced if there was a case of adultery. Then you could divorce. Otherwise, you need to stay married. Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand... Uh, apparently was a rabbi that a lot of guys liked because he had a very loose view on it. And you probably heard it said before that he taught that even if your wife burns the toast or messes up the food in the kitchen, you can divorce her. You get bored with her, you can divorce her. You find her unattractive, you can divorce her. She's talking back to you, you can divorce her. He had a very loose view on divorce, and that kind of funnels into the, uh, the way that the teachers and the law and the scribes interpreted Scripture. And later in Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, they're going to come to Jesus and they're going to ask him, you know, can we get divorced for any and every reason? And that's, that's kind of the way they viewed Deuteronomy 24, influenced by Rabbi Hillel, is that you can get divorced for pretty much any reason. Just offer a certificate of divorce, if you find anything indecent about her, and just move on. And what Jesus does here in the Sermon on the Mount as he comes and he, he is correcting, correcting and countering that laxed view towards marriage and divorce. That view of, yeah, just offer a certificate of divorce and be done with her. Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it works. Later in Matthew 19, he's going to take it all the way back to creation. So while Jesus is countering this view of divorce in his own culture and this faulty interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 which the scribes and the Pharisees were using to justify divorce, Jesus holds a very sacred view of marriage. I mean, there's no way around that. The few times that Jesus talks about marriage and divorce, He has a high view of marriage. Jesus believes that marriage is a lifelong commitment. That's what He believes. And so as you enter into a marriage covenant, He believes it is binding for life. So we, we uphold that here at this church, but I also put the word grace up there because I know that for some of you, and I, I want to acknowledge this, that if you've been through a divorce and you've remarried or maybe you chose not to get remarried, you're not that as a label. Nobody views you as, oh, that's the divorce person. That is not how it works. You are accepted here and God is probably using you in powerful ways. There could be a variety of reasons that a divorce took place. And we're not taking you through uh, everything that took place and why decisions were made. 
we're here in the present and we know that God's grace is available to all of us. Uh, we all sin, we all struggle, and that's part of why Jesus says, don't look at divorced people and judge them. Are you struggling with lust in your own life? He gets to the heart of the matter. So we acknowledge the grace, but we also hold the tension together that Jesus does hold a sacred view of marriage. Which I'll just say a few more things. One, is if you're not married, choose your spouse wisely. You know, make sure before you make that covenant to be married for life, that your spouse, who you're going to marry, has that same conviction in Christ that you do, and you take divorce out of your vocabulary. You enter into it, as far as it depends on you, that this is a lifelong commitment. And don't just point fingers at other people or judge other people. Be marriage material. Live such a faithful life and such a conviction and commitment in Christ that you're the type of person that can be married. I don't know if I said that right, but you're the type of person that a parent would look to and say, I trust that person. I want to give my daughter to him because I know he is fully sold out for Christ. Be that kind of person. Now, as a church, we have these seven commitments that we kind of mention at least once a year. Uh, I try to make it bigger right there, but our fourth commitment is we will nurture marriage and young families. We are committed to this as a church. This commitment has existed long before I got here, but the last six and a half plus years, I have noticed through elders' meetings, through discussions, that this is an important part of who we are. And we're not just trying to be reactive, we're trying to be proactive. And through this, we have ministries like Better Together that we encourage people to be a part of just as a, a tool, a resource to try to encourage married people. Uh, we hired a Family Connections minister, which I want to say, uh, is this is not all on Josh. Uh, he is here to help serve this church, just like we, we all are. Uh, so, but he's giving us tools and resources. If you've noticed his bulletin articles, uh, you notice the classes on Wednesday nights that he's teaching. You know, he's got a heavier focus on families, and that's another tool that we're trying to give you. We entered into a partnership with Hope Road Counseling just this past December. If your marriage is really struggling and you need counseling, you know, ministers and elders are available to talk to you, but we could refer you and you can get a discount if you're a member at the Pine Tree Church of Christ, or if you really just can't afford it, just talk to us and we'll figure that out. We have a responsibility as a church, if we hold a sacred view of marriage, to give you tools to help your marriage. And so we believe in that. Now, back to this question, what does it mean to be an inside-out, internalized, his core teachings, follower of Jesus? Well, if we take those Beatitudes and that we start to embody the Beatitudes, you know, if we learn to control our anger and really work on our anger and acknowledge some things about ourselves, and if we pursue reconciliation, and if instead of pointing the finger at other people and the world around us, we look within ourselves and we deal with the lust in our own heart, if we have a sacred view of marriage, and if you keep going in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're committed to telling the truth and letting your yes be yes and your no be no all of the time, if you're committed not to retaliating, if you're committing to loving others, including your enemies, and you start internalizing that, that just starts becoming a part of who you are, I think we would see less divorces 
if both partners were committed to committing their life to Jesus and being fully sold out for Him and believing that following Jesus is the best possible way to live. This is a tough topic. I don't know how you feel right now, but I felt it would be necessary. I emailed the elders earlier this week to end a little differently. So I asked if one of the elders would be willing to pray and not just you know, a generic prayer, but pray a prayer of intercession and intervention for you. Because I don't know if you're struggling with sexual sin and maybe you're deep in that or maybe you're dabbling in that or maybe your marriage is struggling. And so it's time to really step forward and pray for that. We're not, don't pack up just yet, just relax, okay? Ricky's gonna, Ricky Williams is going to come up here. He's going to offer this prayer and he has a few things to say as well and then he will offer the invitation. So I invite one of our shepherds, Ricky Williams.